Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Strength in Depth. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast. This is a history of non-league football, from a time when all football was non-league to the present day, when the top end of the non-league game is practically indistinguishable from the lower reaches of the football league. This is a love story, the story of a part of the game which is kept alive by the dedication of those who will not see it die. But it's also a story of corruption, greed and exclusion, and of clubs that live hand-to-mouth existences without such luxuries as fat television contracts and exorbitant ticket prices to fall back upon. For this first episode, we're going all the way back to the 19th century, when those who controlled the game considered it unseemly for players to get paid believing that the principle of taking part was considerably more important than winning. Their names are now long forgotten, but their values continue to leave their mark on British football to this day. Originally, of course, there was no distinction between league and non-league because there were no leagues. The early stages of the development of association football in England were fired by the Industrial Revolution, and in particular by the sudden rapid growth of the railways. The world's first recognisably modern intercity railway, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, opened its service in 1830 and proved to be successful for transporting both passengers and freight. By 1840, railway lines in Britain remained few and far between, but change was coming. Within ten years, a virtually complete network had been laid, and the vast majority of towns and villages had a rail connection, sometimes two or three. The peak period of construction came between 1845 and 1847, when Parliament authorised the laying of 8,000 miles of track at a projected cost of £200 million, about the same value as the country's annual GDP at the time. By the start of the following decade, the nation was transformed, and a new era of modernity had begun. Distances that could only previously be travelled by horse and carriage could now be done by train. The railways made the country both smaller and larger. People could now work and socialise in towns other than the one that they lived in. 
The historian and essayist Thomas Carlyle wrote in 1850 that Railways are shifting all towns of Britain into new places. No town will stand where it did, and nobody can tell for a long while yet where it will stand. I perceive railways have set all the towns of Britain a-dancing. Time became standardised because trains had to run to a set timetable across the country. National newspapers could now be printed and distributed. Combined with changes in employment law, ordinary people now have both the time and the means to travel, and an industry grew up around this. And amongst the beneficiaries of this new freedom of movement were sports. Cricket had already been played for more than a hundred years, but with teams now able to play each other, they started to organise themselves into county teams, starting with Sussex in 1839. Another game, however, was soon to eclipse cricket in popularity, not only in Britain, but eventually around the entire planet. Football had been played in various forms since the Middle Ages, but by the start of the 19th century, the game had been pared down and was starting to move into public schools in a more sanitised form. By the 1820s, public schools began to devise their own versions of football, rules of which were verbally agreed and handed down over many years. Each school had its own variations. By 1843, a set of rules is believed to have been in existence at Eton, which allowed for handling of the ball to control it, but not running with it in the hand and not passing it by hand either. The first known 11-a-side games took place at Eton, where the dribbling game was popular. The written version of rugby school football rules in 1845 allowed the ball to be carried and passed by hand. The rugby rules are the earliest written version of that game and were a step in the direction of the schism that would eventually lead to the evolution of rugby league and rugby union. Eaton also introduced referees and linesmen, who at that time were called umpires and in 1847, another set of public rules were created at Harrow, which, like Eton, played the dribbling game. Winchester had yet another version of the game. The original Cambridge University rules were written in 1848 by students who were still confused by different rules operating at various schools. It was the first attempt at codifying the rules of association football as distinct from rugby football, with the essential difference in the two codes being that the association game did not allow a player to run with the ball in his hands or pass it by hand to a colleague, though players were allowed to touch and control the ball by hand. By the middle of the 19th century, though, the first signs were showing that the game might not stay in the hands of the upper classes alone forever. A new class of workers, clerks, engineers and bookkeepers, was starting to emerge, and they started to take this new game back to their communities as well. 
in the winter of 1855-56, players of Sheffield Cricket Club organised informal football matches to help them retain fitness. On the 24th of October 1857, they formally created Sheffield Football Club, which is now formally recognised as the world's oldest association football club. On the 21st of October 1858, at the club's first annual general meeting, the club drafted the Sheffield rules for use in matches. These rules went still further in differentiating from the rugby version of the game. Hacking was outlawed, but fair catches were allowed, providing the player did not hold on to the ball. Just over a year later, in January 1860, the rules were upgraded to outlaw handling. On Boxing Day 1860, the world's first inter-club match took place when Sheffield defeated newly formed Hallam FC at Sandygate Road, Hallam's Ground. In 1862, J.C. Fring, who had been one of the driving forces behind the original Cambridge rules, was a master at Uppingham School and he issued his own rules of what he called the simplest game. These are also known as the Uppingham Rules. And in early October 1863, another new revised version of the Cambridge Rules was drawn up as well. It was clear, however, that a new single set of rules for this game was needed. The man who turned out to be the inspiration behind a new football association was Ebenezer Cobb Morley. In 1862, while captain of Barnes, he wrote to a newspaper proposing a governing body for the sport. Morley found a receptive audience, so on the 21st of October 1863, at the Freemasons Tavern on Great Queen Street in Covent Garden, representatives of several football clubs in the London metropolitan area met for the inaugural meeting of the Football Association. The aim of the association was to establish a single unifying code and regulate the playing of the game among its members. Those present at that first meeting were Barnes FC, Civil Service FC, Crusaders, Forest of Leytonstone, who would later become Wanderers FC, the No Names Club of Kilburn, the original Crystal Palace, Blackheath, Kensington School, Percival House of Blackheath, Surbiton and Blackheath Proprietary School. Following the meeting, the public schools were invited to join the association. All of them declined except for Charterhouse and Uppingham. In total, six meetings of the FA were held between October and December 1863. After the third meeting, a draft set of rules were published and from here on there were problems. At the beginning of the fourth meeting, attention was drawn to the recently published Cambridge Rules of 1863. The Cambridge Rules differed from the draft FA rules in two significant areas, namely running with the ball, which was known as carrying, and hacking, which was kicking opposing players in the shins. There were two contentious laws. Rule 9 stated that, a player shall be entitled to run with the ball towards his adversary's goal if he makes a fair catch or catches the ball on the first bound, but in each case of a fair catch, if he makes his mark, he shall not run. While Rule 10 stated that, 
if any player shall run with the ball towards his adversary's goal, any player on the opposite side shall be at liberty to charge, hold, trip or hack him, or to wrest the ball from him, but no player shall be held and hacked at the same time. At the fifth meeting, it was proposed that these two rules be removed. Most of the delegates supported this, but F.M. Campbell, the representative from Blackheath and the first F.A. Treasurer, objected, claiming that hacking is the true football. However, the motion to ban running with the ball in hand and hacking was carried, and Blackheath withdrew from the FA following the last of the six meetings. A further six clubs would also join the group, which had coalesced around the rugby school rules. The final split between rugby rules and association rules into rugby and soccer, with soccer being the popular abbreviation for association in public schools of the time, was complete. The newly formed FA set up an exhibition match to show off their new laws for the 2nd of January 1864, but some members of the new organisation couldn't quite wait that long. So on the 18th of December 1863, the first recorded match played under association rules finished in a goalless draw between Barnes and Richmond. The exhibition match planned by the FA did take place though, with representative teams playing at Battersea Park. By January 1864, the Football Association had nine members. Barnes, Kilburn, Crystal Palace, the Civil Service, Forest Club, Forest School, Sheffield, Uppingham and Royal Engineers of Chatham. Association footballers codified by the FA in 1863, however, didn't look very much like the game that we would recognise today. Players could make a fair catch and claim a mark, which entitled them to a free kick. And if a player touched the ball behind the opponent's goal line, he was entitled to a free kick at goal, from 15 yards in front of the goal line. In 1866 came a further test of these new laws of the game. In February of that year, a letter from William Chesterman, the secretary of Sheffield FC, was sent to the Football Association suggesting a match. Chesterman suggested that the Sheffield rules of the time were nearly the same as those of the Football Association and suggested the advisability of the clubs in Sheffield playing a pick team from London composed of players playing under association rules. Chesterman agreed that the match would be played under the 1866 revision of the FA's laws of the game which had been adopted less than six weeks earlier. Sheffield FC held a training match one week prior to the game to practice the rules of football association. The London team would be made up of players from Barnes FC, Wanderers FC and the No Names Club, the leading association clubs of the time, and it is likely that this team would have a considerable advantage for the match on account of their familiarity with the existing rules. The match was played on a wet afternoon at the end of March 1866 and the London team won by two goals and four touchdowns to nil. It was played over 90 minutes with no break for half-time and the players changed ends after each goal. They were allowed to catch or knock the ball with their hands but throwing it and running were forbidden. There was no punishment for infringements of the rules and no corner kicks either 
with a goal kick being awarded whenever the ball went behind the goal line, regardless of which team kicked the ball last. Some years later, William Chesterman described the match thus. Knocking on was allowed. Every goal that was scored was knocked through, and many a fist found a nose. Still, it was a pleasant match. By the summer of 1871, association football was starting to get organised. The first international matches, albeit unofficial ones, had already been played, and the feeling was growing that the game needed greater coordination if it was to flourish. And by this time, there was a feeling that things had to change. The schism between the clubs playing by the rugby rules and those playing by association rules effectively became unbridgeable at the start of that year. On the 26th of January 1871, representatives from 21 clubs met at the Pall Mall restaurant on London's Regent Street to form the Rugby Football Union. The FA then had a rival sport now and needed to act quickly to secure the solid growth of the game in the years since its formation eight years earlier. A year prior to this, the FA's secretary, Charles W. Walcock, had managed to establish the principle of international football by placing advertisements in Scottish newspapers for a team to take on a team representing England. This time around, though, it was the club game that needed to be taken to another level. Alcock drew on his days at the Harrow Public School, where teams had been formed into competing houses to propose a knockout cup competition between its member clubs. The FA had 50 member clubs at the time, but Alcock only received 15 replies. Further withdrawals and new entrants would mean that the first FA Challenge Cup competition would only start with 14 teams, and this 14 included Queen's Park, the Glasgow-based club who provided the Scotland team for that first match against England a year earlier. On the 7th of November 1871, the first FA Cup matches were played. The competition rules stipulated matters that were not at the time covered by the laws of the game. Each team should consist of 11 players, and each match should last 90 minutes. Matches would be refereed by two umpires, one from each club, and in the event of a draw, the question of whether clubs should replay or whether they should both be allowed to progress through to the next round would be left to the discretion of the FA's committee. When Hitchin and Crystal Palace played out a goalless draw, they were both allowed through. Elsewhere, it was reported that Jarvis Kendrick of Clapham Rovers scored the competition's first goal in their 3-0 win against Upton Park. Whilst the difficulties that early clubs had in raising a team could be seen in the civil service only being able to send eight players to their trip to play Barnes, a match which they lost by two goals to nil. The second round of the competition saw another withdrawal, when Donington Park were unable to travel to Glasgow for their match against Queen's Park. The odd number of clubs left in the competition resulted in Queen's getting a bye again in the quarter-finals meaning that they reached the semi-finals of the first FA Cup 
without actually having to kick a single ball. Both semi-finals and the final were due to be played at Kennington Oval, but after Queen's Park drew their match against Wanderers, they couldn't afford to make the long trip down from Glasgow a second time, and thus withdrew from the competition, giving Wanderers a place in the final. Wanderers had proposed 30 minutes of extra time to settle the match, but Queen's Park refused. The final, attended by a crowd of 2,000 people, was played between Wanderers and the Royal Engineers, and a goal scored after 15 minutes by Morton Betts, who was playing under the pseudonym of A.H. Checkers for reasons that remain unclear, was enough to win the trophy for Wanderers. By the start of the 1872-73 season then, the foundations upon which association football would come to flourish had been put in place. The England vs Scotland match would remain part of the calendar until 1989, while the FA Cup remains to this day, albeit in a position somewhat reduced from the height of its popularity. The clubs, however, already seem to be evolving at a pace beyond the Football Association itself. Cricket clubs have been the first to establish properly enclosed grounds, and with cricket being a summer sport, many started their own football clubs for winter use, or were happy to rent their facilities to football clubs looking for a home of their own. Clubs soon found that they could raise a little extra money by passing around collection tins amongst the crowds that were starting to gather, and it wasn't long before these fields became enclosed by fences, which not only allowed clubs to charge everyone who wanted to enter, but also gave them an identity that they hadn't previously enjoyed. With this, however, came a shift in expectation. These new supporters wanted more than mere exhibition and friendly matches. They wanted the best players, and they wanted the teams they supported to win. The grounds grew in size, with sloping banks of compressed ash and cinders allowing more people a better view, whilst grandstands provided seating and cover for those running the clubs, as well as those prepared to pay for the privilege. The early years of the FA Cup demonstrated the financial pressures that clubs were already under. The former public schoolboys of the FA, who took their cues from muscular Christianity and the idea of pure amateurism, often had private incomes, but clubs from cities such as Nottingham and Sheffield had been unable to enter the FA Cup throughout much of this period because they couldn't even afford the cost of travel. Throughout the mid to late 1870s, county football associations started to spring up across the country. The first, in Sheffield, had been founded in 1867, primarily because the Sheffield clubs still played by different rules to the association rules. But a decade later, county FAs opened for business in Surrey and Shropshire, with Cheshire and Lancashire following in 1878. As the 1870s ticked over into the 1880s, Fault lines between the avowedly amateur and the rest were starting to open up. New clubs in the textile towns of Lancashire, such as Blackburn Olympic, Blackburn Rovers, Darwin and Preston North End, began to attract quite large crowds and started to pay their players under the counter, whilst others offered easy jobs in businesses owned by the owners of the club in order to secure their services. The tipping point came with the 1883 FA Cup final. Founded in 1875, Blackburn Olympic were funded by Sydney Yates, 
the owner of a local iron foundry. The club entered the FA Cup for the first time in the 1882-83 season. Coached by former England player Jack Hunter, Blackburn reached the final against Old Etonians and, in front of a crowd of 8,000 people, won the FA Cup with a goal 17 minutes into extra time. Blackburn Olympic were the first Northern club to win the FA Cup. The gentlemen amateurs, who dominated the game's first decade, would never win the FA Cup again. The matter of professionalism came to a head the following year. The ambitious owner of Preston North End had been tempting Scottish players south in exchange for jobs since around 1880. But when Preston beat the amateur club Upton Park by 10 goals to nil in an FA Cup match in January 1884, their opponents lodged a complaint that Preston were, in contradiction of the FA's rules, paying their players. The FA found in their favour and expelled Preston from the competition. Upton Park were reinstated for the next round, but were beaten 3-0 at home by Blackburn Olympic, another club who were paying their players at the time. Perhaps surprisingly though, the most vocal opponents of professionalism didn't come from the Southern Amateurs. The opponents of professionalism tended to come from Sheffield and Nottingham, and they pushed the FA to issue a questionnaire to members in 1884, asking for details on their players, including any wages, under the threat of expulsion should they refuse to do so. The Lancashire clubs convened and pledged not to answer the questionnaire, and it was even suggested that they might withdraw en masse from the FA Cup and set up a rival professional competition. Charles Alcock, that man again, turned out to be the man who found a way through the mess. On the 27th of July 1885, the FA ended its ban on professionalism. This, however, came with conditions attached. Clubs were now allowed to pay players providing that they had either been born or had lived for two years within a six-mile radius of a club's ground, a rule put in place to try and curb the tide of clubs importing players en masse from Scotland, which wasn't removed until 1890, whilst rules were also put in place preventing professional players playing for more than one club in a season without obtaining special permission. To this end, all professional players now had to be registered with the FA. According to the governing body itself, it was in the interests of association football to legalise the employment of professional football players. From here on, The path towards the formation of the Football League was largely downhill. Professional clubs were now dominating the FA Cup, but this competition alone didn't ensure sufficient revenue for these clubs to be able to pay their players. Early elimination from the competition effectively ended a club's competitive season, and with the first round being played in the middle of October by 1887, the remainder of the season was a very long time to go, with only friendly matches to play. The mastermind behind the creation of the world's first football league was the Scottish director of Aston Villa, William MacGregor. MacGregor had been involved in the discussions surrounding the ending of the ban on professionalism, speaking out in its favour 
and openly admitting that his club had been paying players. McGregor had become frustrated with the lack of fixtures available and after Aston Villa had five consecutive weeks worth of matches cancelled during the 1887-88 season, he wrote the following letter to the chairman of four other clubs, Preston North End, Bolton Wanderers, West Bromwich Albion and Blackburn Rovers, as well as his own club. Every year it is becoming more and more difficult for football clubs of any standing to meet their friendly engagements and even arrange friendly matches. The consequence is that at the last moment, through cup tie interference, clubs are compelled to take on teams who will not attract the public. I beg to tender the following suggestion as a means of getting over the difficulty. That 10 or 12 of the most prominent clubs in England combine to arrange home and away fixtures each season. The said fixtures to be arranged at a friendly conference about the same time as the international conference. The combination might be known as the Association Football Union and could be managed by representatives from each club. Of course, this is in no way to interfere with the National Association. Even the suggested matches might be played under cup tie rules. However, this is a detail. My object in writing to you at present is merely to draw your attention to the subject and to suggest a friendly conference to discuss the matter more fully. I would take it as a favour if you would kindly think the matter over and make whatever suggestions you deem necessary. I am only writing to the following. Blackburn Rovers, Bolton Wanderers, Preston North End, West Bromwich Albion and Aston Villa and would like to hear what other clubs you would suggest. The all-important meeting was held on the 23rd of March 1888 at Anderson's Hotel in London. Notably, no clubs from London or the South attended. After agreeing the basic principles of the new competition, a second meeting was held in Manchester six weeks later. McGregor didn't get everything his own way. His suggestion of calling the new organisation the Association Football Union was rejected by those present as being too close to the name of the Rugby Football Union and the name of the Football League was chosen instead even though McGregor was concerned that this name was too close to that of the Irish Land League a political organisation which was not terribly popular with the British establishment at the time. McGregor's other recommendation a rule that only one club from each town should be included, was accepted. Where the idea came from in the first place is somewhat conflicted. Contemporary reports suggest that McGregor was influenced by baseball, which had been undergoing a surge in popularity at the time in England, whilst McGregor himself later claimed to have been influenced by county cricket, even though the formal county cricket championship didn't begin until 1890. Whether this was false recollection or whether he was referring to the unofficial championships that had taken place over the previous quarter of a century is lost to the mists of time. The 12 member clubs would play each other twice throughout the season, once at home and once away, a total of 22 scheduled matches throughout the season. Two points would be awarded to winning teams and those points would be shared if the clubs tied their game. At the end of the season, the team with the most points would be the champions and everybody else would be ranked by the number of points they accumulated. If two teams finished level on points, they would be separated by dividing the number of goals they'd scored by the number of goals they'd conceded. 
this system, goal average, would remain in the Football League's preferred method of separating teams on points until 1979. At the other end of the table, the bottom four clubs would have to reapply for their place in the competition for the following season, and other league members voting every summer on whether any of these four bottom clubs should be allowed to continue as members or whether a new applicant should replace them. This system became known as re-election and stayed in place until 1986. The plan was beautiful in its simplicity. Not only was it completely meritocratic, what better way could there be of deciding who is best than having everybody play everybody twice, but the league table could also be updated throughout the season, turning the competition into a form of race that could be followed from start to finish. We take league tables for granted these days, of course, but this was radical thinking for the end of the 19th century. Twelve clubs, Accrington, Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, Bolton Wanderers, Burnley, Derby County, Everton, Notts County, Preston North End, Stoke, West Bromwich Albion and Wolverhampton Wanderers were invited to join the Football League. On the 8th of September 1888, the new competition started. League football had arrived, but it wouldn't be long until there was competition for this new tournament. Thank you for listening to this 200% podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Be good to each other. And robots.